Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Okay, so today we have a conversation between myself and Wyatu Moores, author of She Would Be King, which is a novel that weaves together the tale of three main and somewhat magical characters from the U.S., West Africa, and Jamaica as their fates and special powers converge in the founding struggle of Liberia in the early 19th century. So I know, Dea, you had read the book, but you couldn't make it to this particular conversation. But I really enjoyed this conversation, not only because I thought the novel is really interesting in terms of telling a slightly different story, like we don't have, as far as I know, a lot of fiction that kind of covers the founding struggle of Liberia. But That sounds right this, to me. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, more as she talks about at the top of our interview does actually have kind of a family history. Her family fled the Civil War in 1989 in Liberia. And so she mm. kind of grew up in this place between, they, they moved around, I think they were in New Jersey, if I remember, and then Texas for a while, which is where she primarily grew up in the U.S. So she kind of has this identity that emerges between cultures, between continents, and really wanted to return in the novel to kind of talk about this founding moment in mythology um, that's part of her own story. And from what I remember of the book, it feels mythological in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's and, speculative fiction. Right. For sure. Yeah. Um, it also feels like almost a, f- a founding myth being retold in mm. more detail. Yeah. Does and she, right? she told me that she kind of like blended a lot of kind of myths or you would say like folk tales that she had heard and in, in order to kind of create these very dynamic characters. But enough let's of get me to the going on. Exactly. Yeah. Let's get right to it. Okay. We're excited to have author Wayetu Moore with us in the studio today. Wayetu is a professor of Africana Studies at John Jay College in New York and the founder of One More Book, a boutique publisher of multicultural children's literature. She joins us today to talk about her debut novel, the lush and harrowing She Would Be King. The novel primarily follows the journeys of three principal characters that culminate in the founding struggle for Liberia. We meet Gbessa, the Vi witch cursed by her people because she cannot die, Junde, an African-American born into slavery who escapes his Virginia plantation thanks to his invincibility, and Norman Aragon, a mulatto from Jamaica whose gift is the ability to make himself invisible. Part romance, part fantasy, part historical novel, she would be king asks heavy questions about what it means to belong, what it means to be an outsider, and the struggle between freed slaves, indigenous populations, and French colonists at the founding of Liberia. Welcome to the show, Wayetu. Thank you for having me. We'll start with like kind of a a little bit of personal history, because as I understand it, your family actually fled Liberia during the Civil War in the late 1980s, I believe in 1989. And obviously the novel is telling the story of Liberia's founding in a much earlier period. So I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about how your personal history kind of informs the story that you wanted to tell in She Would Be King? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me. So my family left Liberia in actually 1990 because of the war. I was five at the time. My mom was at Columbia. She was a Fulbright and she ended up sneaking back into the country, hiring someone to sneak back into the country to get us. And so we moved to New York when I was five. We actually lived in her dorm room for 
the rest of her time there for her last semester. So don't tell Columbia. <laughs> and we traveled around quite a bit. We lived in Connecticut and Memphis, and we settled in Texas when I was eight. And that's where I spent my formative years. And we lived in a very, we lived outside of Houston, a suburb outside of Houston that was very conservative, very white and homogenous. And I just heard very little about Africa or mm. Liberia outside of my home. And I think it's because of that absence and knowing from what I heard from my parents who did try to tether us to our home culture by making sure they were sharing the history of the country. And we always had Liberian foods. And during the summer, we would visit relatives in Minnesota and in the Northeast. But there was definitely an absence. And from what my father had told me about the country, I knew that the history was very closely tied to American history and also to explorations of Black identity from early 19th century to Reconstruction. But it was just altogether missing the fact that there was something called the American Colonization Society and there was a place for freed Black bodies during Reconstruction, during the 19th century, before slavery even ended. So when I became an artist, I knew that Liberia was somewhere that I wanted to explore through my art. Can we actually talk a little bit about the history of Liberia's founding and the American Colonization Society, the ACS, which plays a big role, actually, kind of, it's a little bit in the background, but it's an important part of the story of the novel. It's kind of like all, the politics of it are actually quite weird, because on the one hand, it seems like it's a profoundly good thing, but it also kind of has this somewhat, as several of your characters mention, a kind of racist underpinning itself. Yeah, the research that I conducted was astounding. It was mostly Quakers and abolitionists that formed something called the American Colonization Society to resettle freed Blacks on the continent because Mm -hmm. their claim was that Black bodies would never be able to obtain the sort of freedom and equality that they wanted in this country. So they began to petition to the government and also raise funds to settle a plot of land in West Africa. That's what they named Liberia. Right. And actually, Britain had a similar project. That's how Sierra Leone was settled. It was colonized by the British for free blacks and former slaves from the UK. And so at the time when the American Colonization Society began this project, it was early 19th century. Many of the blacks who went over were already free. And in my research, I actually found that there were two sides of it. Actually, in my immediate family as well, my paternal side, they went to Liberia from South Carolina in 1871, but some members of his family emigrated and then some stayed because, yes, as you mentioned, they did consider it racist. Mm -hmm. And while I was conducting research for the book, I found that there were town halls that were held by free Blacks and former slaves up and down the eastern coast of the United States who were saying, I'm American. I'm not going back to the continent. Like We find this entire movement very, very racist, as you said, in its undertone. And so there were definitely two different sides of the coin. My paternal side ended up being on the side of the coin that chose to return. And obviously, there were massive challenges and subtleties and and navigating what it takes to create a new republic. What does that even look like? And what does it look like in a place where race is not what is defining the stratification? It's um, it's class, it's nation of origin, and really trying to make sense of very much a diaspora experiment because you had people from the Caribbean who were going to Liberia as well. So early 19th century, you have free Blacks and former slaves from America 
emigrating to the place that was then later called Liberia in 1847. And then from the Caribbean, you have settlers and freed people from Barbados who also were trying to find a place to go and then ended up in Liberia. And you have these three groups, three ends of the triangle, making sense of this space, this place that's very much a haven while colonialism and imperialism are still very present on the continent. And while slavery is still going on in much of the Western world, because remember, this was before the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And while slave trading was outlawed in 1808, slavery was still very present and still going on. And so it was very just, it has a remarkable history. It has a history that's linked to America. And I did think that it deserved exploration in a way that I hadn't experienced in the Western literary canon. Yeah. And one of the things to pick up on, and then I want to talk a little bit more specifically about some of your incredible characters. But one of the things that's interesting is that when you look at Liberia, which is true in the history as it's true also in your book, is there's actually a very odd tension between the kind of freed slaves from the U.S., also from the kind of Caribbean, who have money or have access to capital, and then they make it over to Liberia, establish what is effectively like a kind of middle class and then a little bit of like an upper class Mm-hmm. And then their relationship with the indigenous population is one that several of your characters call out as reproducing, if not in its extreme violence, some of the relations of submission and domination that were exactly what they fled from in the United States. Yeah, so this particular conversation is one that is difficult. I do try to emphasize the nuance of what was going on. I don't think that it compares to what was happening in the West because sure. not everyone who was emigrating one had money, my family included, my paternal Mm. side, when they went to Liberia, they actually started working on a farm while they were waiting for their grant. Because what the American Colonization Society did is they did make it possible for people who were emigrating to get land once they arrived, but it was a process that they had to go through and they had to wait for the land. And while they were waiting for their land to materialize, they were working on a farm. Now, how does social stratification manifest is that someone who was a settler working on a farm would be making 50 cents, for instance, and a native worker would perhaps be making 25 cents. So it was Mm. clearly unfair. There was endemic national favoritism. But if that native worker wanted to leave that farm, he or she could. And that was not the case. Of course. Right. So I think the classism, absolutely, there was a system of classism that was established. It was divisive in its nature in setting up what they considered was civilized and If anything, if there was any brutality, I would say it was like the enforcement of their religion because it's really a manifestation of adopting a Western religion during an oppressive period in one's history and then going back and enforcing that religion on a Native population, right? And so if I consider violence in any way, what was going on in that era, I would say it was maybe forcing that and suppressing any other signs of occult or secular spirituality. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, I think that there were nuances. I do try to, there were tensions, but I do try to stay away from the comparison that places the settlers in the same vein as slavers or slave owners in the West at the time. Yeah. So now let's talk about some of the characters. I think one of the ones that appealed to me so much is Gabessa. And Mm -hmm. so she is marked from childhood as a witch. She has like fiery red hair. 
and mm-hmm. she also is immortal. So there is like an aspect of her that she is this kind of supernatural creature. And I'm just mm-hmm. fascinated by like, how did you conceive of her? And then I also mm-hmm. wanted to wonder, did she change in any way over the course of you writing the novel? Because she's such a, a striking figure and she allows you to kind of talk about so many different types of things. Yeah, absolutely. So Bessa, she is a bi woman. The bi woman, when they, my mom's bi. And so in the Liberian contest okay. text, I'm mixed in that my mom is of a native ethnic group and then my dad is from the settling class. But so she's bi and they, a lot of them historically are farmers and spent a lot of time in the sun. So have very dark skin, but their hair had like a light brownish tint. Mm. And it was just an exacerbation of that, her being in the sun and the sun having her to itself. And so that light brown becomes fiery red within, as I was imagining this character. And so Bessa came about at the beginning of the book. I, there's an author's note that I offer that it's an aphorism. So when I was younger, I would get told by my mom and my grandmother and my aunts, Things like, don't dig too much in the dirt, the devil come pull you down, right? Or <laughs> don't hum a cat, is what they told me. Whatever you do, don't hum a cat. You remember there's an old woman who beat her cat to death and the ghost of the cat jumped to the top of her house and killed her, right? <laughs> Which so you have at the beginning of the book, yeah. Exactly. So obviously these things are very, very traumatic, but the author's note is I essentially gave credit to this story that I was told when I was younger and about 10 years ago, a friend of mine had asked me if I'd ever written African fiction. And at the time I was writing mostly about, I would say the cross-cultural experience of having both African immigrant and African American sensibilities. And I had not tried to write African fiction yet. Mm. And so I said, well, no, I haven't, but I do want to give it a shot. And so I wanted to flesh out this story or this folktale of the woman beating her cat, the ghost of the cat coming back. And I wanted to give the cat a personality and I wanted to give the woman a name and I wanted to give this village texture and shape. And then after that, I started to wonder, it was about 15 pages or so. I was like, well, what happens in this village after something this sacred and this heavy occurs? And I was like, okay, so based on these superstitions, they would likely curse the day. And then that evolved into what would happen if someone's born that day and it ended up being this woman. And of course, spending time with her after her exile, I began to think about what was going on outside of the village in that region at the time. And of course, it was the settlement of these freed Blacks from America. And so that's when the story took shape and Bessa became who she was. I also like she has this one of the other aspects of her story that runs throughout the novel is this it's a kind of romance with Safua, who is the he's the chief of the Vi village that she comes from and is eventually exiled from. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Mm -hmm. I find so fascinating about that character is actually Safua, I mean, is the burden of responsibility for a village, which I think that Gbessa doesn't really grasp until the very end because effectively he says Mm -hmm. that he's going to take care of her he's kind of her special friend even though the rest of the village shuns her he understands her and he listens Mm -hmm. to her and he cares for her but then Mm -hmm. she appears to have killed his well or have severely impacted his firstborn son right who starts having Mm -hmm. seizures and so then 
he kind of, because she represents a threat to the community, seems to, even though we know that he may feel inside differently, he has to kind of exile her and he saves her from being killed. And then they have this very interesting and heartbreaking reunion. Well, not really because he's, well, I don't want to spoil the rest of the book, but they have this kind of heartbreaking (laughs) reunion at the end of the book. And I just wanted to hear a little bit about like, was that relationship difficult to write? I mean, because it's very poignant, I think, and hard to read at times because you can see two people who are caught in the net of social forces that kind of force them apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in that relationship, I really wanted to examine intimacy without physical touch. Like, what does intimacy mean? Mm. What does love really mean? Because some of the questions I had to ask myself were included, why would she care for him as much as she did? And why would she care for him for so long throughout her story and throughout her life? And I wanted to really explore the notion of true isolation and true loneliness, mm-hmm. how that feels for someone who is markedly shunned by everyone. To have one person say, I'm here for you, I'll protect you, I love you, in essence, more or less, and the incredible impact that has on someone's life. And it was really just an exploration of that. Like, what does that look like in a story, in a narrative. When you talk about intimacy, you talk about love with two people who have never even touched Mm -hmm. because even when they had their meetings, their quiet meetings, they never touched. And it was curious for me because I wrote a lot of this book in my 20s. Actually, I wrote all the book in my 20s when I was younger and, you know, dating and exploring (laughs) love myself and the different faces of love and how it looked. And so these themes of love and also of power and of femininity, I think manifest in this story during some of the periods in my life when I was trying to figure those themes out myself. You are listening to the Law Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We now return to our conversation with Wyatt Moore author of She Would Be King. Intimacy is also a fraught issue for Gabessa in a larger sense because she's immortal and there are several moments when she kind of reflects on the fact that it's everyone that she's loved or that she's known is dying or will die and that she won't. Like, mm-hmm. there's another relationship mm-hmm. that she has and she confronts the fact that it's like, I'm going to see him die. I may see Liberia blossom and then itself die and I'll still be here. At those moments in the book, I think I almost feel the most hurt for Gabessa as someone who has to not mm-hmm. only, like, survive what is lots of torture, isolation, alienation, and then all of the passions that kind of make life feel whole, but then also to watch those things fade away. Like in some senses Mm -hmm. to me, she's like the most tragic character that you have, even though she's also, I think, the most beautiful character. Yeah, I mean, it was hard because I did initially, even with the title, it gives this pretense that as someone said before, I thought it would be going to be a sword-wielding character and she would dominate <laughs> throughout the book. And I was like, well... Well, well for those of you wanting that, that, she does wield a sword near the end. <laughs> she does wield a sword near the end, exactly. But throughout the book, she's wrestling with herself. She's wrestling with her power. She's wrestling 
but the reality of her situation, of her context, of her history, of her people. And I think that that's very much the story of womanhood and very much the story of black womanhood. And so she is someone who I wanted to be probably the most realistic and commentary on what it's like to live with this coupled beauty, but also tragedy that is being a black woman at times in today's world. And so you recognize that you have this power. You recognize that there is something that is uniquely beautiful about your existence and long lasting and resilient. But then along with that, there comes what others perceive as in Bess's tale as a curse. And how do you balance those things? And that was my relationship with Vesta throughout the book. I was always in conversation with that duality. Okay, and can we talk about the other two characters? Because, okay, so the other two obviously also have powers, right? So June Day is, I guess we would say, invincible, not immortal, but invincible. And Norman can kind of, I love the way that you describe it because it's, he actually, he becomes invisible is the effect of it. But what it sounds like is actually happening is he's just blending himself with the natural environment, a kind of immersion that removes the visual presence that he has. So part of me actually thought of this novel as like, oh, this is like, maybe this sounds perverse, but it's like, this is like the kind of X-Men like going to Liberia, you know, (laughs) where everybody has their own power and they're going to band together and they're going to help like set things right. But obviously that's not, this this novel is not (laughs) X-Men. But I am interested in, like, what do those powers that June Day and Norman have signify? Okay. So June Day, he has resilience. Of course, he's, as you stated before, his skin is impervious to bullets and blades. And so during June Day's first encounter with the overseer, he escapes the plantation and ends up on a boat back to Liberia. Mm -hmm. And... June Day's character, his strength was in direct conversation with and also honoring and respecting the struggle and sacrifice of African-Americans in this country. Mm. I recognize that as a black immigrant, I do benefit from privileges that were earned by black bodies who were fighting when many of my ancestors weren't here. So I wanted to create a character that represented that strength that embodied the resilience of those sacrifices. For Norman Aragon, and Norman Aragon, he, as you stated, can make himself invisible by blending into his natural environment. And Norman's mother is a maroon, and I did want to feature uh, a group that had successfully rebelled from from slavery or from oppression because there's so much content that presented these characters and the cultures that they represented as subjugated groups or disenfranchised or oppressed, and I wanted to show the other side of that. And the Maroons were able to, they were a Jamaican group Mm -hmm. able to successfully rebel from their British slave owners during two wars that happened in Jamaica. And they ended up signing a treaty and the treaty essentially said that one, you can never attack again. And we're actually going to ship some of you to Sierra Leone to get off the Island. And two, if any of the inland slaves from Jamaica try to come up the mountains, you have to send them back. And in addition to that, one of the reasons that the British stopped attacking them was because they felt that the Maroons were practicing superstitious beliefs. Right, witchcraft. Witchcraft is what they would say. Yeah, they thought that they were practicing witchcraft um, by disappearing. But in some of the research that I'd done and, and what I'd read, it said that the Maroons from time to time did tap into African spirituality. And there were recollections of people 
disappearing. And that just fascinated me. So I wanted to make that true in my book and find a way to incorporate that in the book while also featuring a successful slave rebellion. One of the other things that I think, particularly at the end that the novel tackles along these kind of lines is the struggle for freedom and how that oftentimes means making certain kind of compromises that are in view of a longer struggle that one wants to wage. So, for example, there's a moment when one of the characters from Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, is talking about how they, I believe it's Gerald who says like he doesn't want to have to be dependent on effectively there is still something of like white rule in this area because of trade and economics and that he doesn't yeah. want to have to go through that. And then um, the, his interlocutor, who may be Gbessa, I'm not, I can't remember that scene entirely, is saying that it's like, well, but look at what happened to Haiti. They refused, the world basically refused to trade with Haiti, and that caused a yeah. lot of problems in its, after it had liberated itself. Yeah. And so I just so, kept thinking uh, about that particular political moment. And at the same time, these people in Liberia are also threatened by the French who are kind of creeping yeah, around. Exactly. And at any moment, like, on the one hand, I can see the dualism between wanting to believe and seeing proof that you are finally actually free. And then at mm-hmm. every other moment surrounding you is the possibility of unfreedom. And the tension between those things mm-hmm. is terrific in that sense of terrifying. Yeah, so little uh, nugget, a, a tidbit of Liberian history for the first 20 to 30 years of the settlement before 1847, before Liberians claimed their independence, the colony was ruled by white governors that were sent over by the American Colonization Society. And that was what was referenced in Gerald's conversation. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, we're here, you know, they sent us here to this place that we're free, but the people who are governing us still have white faces. They still don't think that we are smart enough or competent enough to run our own government. And it was only when the ACS began to lose funding that those governors left, that they encouraged those who were still in Liberia to declare independence. Mm. And that's how that came about. Yeah. But another thing that I wanted to tackle and, and really just be in conversation with while I was writing was this idea that, and I think we touched on this before, but the, the intraracial dynamics that exist like, I think it's human nature to be divisive. And I think that if you have any place where there is no race, you're going to have some in 200, 300 years when we're all, what all of human race is a mixture of something, mm-hmm. there'll be some other system of stratification. Sure. I yes. think in the context of Liberia, what they wanted or what liberation, what black liberation means, it isn't necessarily a utopia, even though they recognize that they were free. But I think with that, there's also a recognition of, okay, well, if I'm human, then obviously I'm free to sort of align with human tendency and human tendency is to be divisive. And so what's natural for me is to look out for people who I have identified are just like me. And that's what was going on at the time. And then sort of having to deal with some of those intraracial dynamics when not only the French, but also the British and other imperialists in the area were said, oh, really? The American Colonization Society is leaving? And, well, let's see if we can get a little bit more of this land for some right. of our Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's an opportunity. Happening. Yeah. Exactly. Because Liberia actually initially was twice its size. It was because the French kept on imposing and imposing and imposing 
that it's as small as it is now. Liberia has four and a half million people compared to, for instance, Nigeria, which is also in the region, and they're close to 200 million at this time. Or even Ghana, they're like 30, 40 million, but we're so, so, so small. And that could be traced to that, the fact that we were getting imposed on. And I think what the settlers wanted and what those bodies wanted at the time is just the freedom to figure this stuff out. And it wasn't to say that, hey, in having our own country, we're going to have it all together. It was saying we're going to have the freedom to figure the things that we don't have together out, you know, without imposition, Mm. without anyone infringing on our natural human freedoms. Now, I have to ask you, having finished the book this morning and desperately wanting an epilogue or a little bit more, is (laughs) are you thinking about, and I'm not going to spoil it, but it's like you could see that there might be another novel that comes after this that explores the kind of post-climax of this novel and what that, because there's a lot still to be dealt with. Are Mm -hmm. you thinking about a sequel? I know this is like the kind of the time (laughs) of sequels and series, but are you thinking of another sequel or exploring other kind of stories that have to do with this diasporic history? Maybe. I'll say (laughs) that. Maybe. No commitments right now. (laughs) No commitments. But I will say that when I initially started to think about a follow-up or writing somewhat of a continuation to this, it wouldn't start where the story ended. I feel like a sequel would really delve into Safwa's story and what happens to Safwa if Mm. he gets on that boat and has to go to America. And does he find other people who are gifted in America? Because I see Safwa, I'm obsessed with, if you can't tell, (laughs) the fantasy genre. So I grew up watching Never Ending Story. (laughs) Same, same. Yeah. yeah, and movies like that. And so when I conceptualized Safwa, he was actually one of those characters, these mortal or civilian type characters who attract gifted people. And so flirting with the idea of what Safwa looks, someone like Safwa who, yes, had the responsibility and had obviously this line of prestige and royalty in his blood than being placed in a context like the southern United States or Jamaica during that time. What would that look like? And who are the people who are around him? Who are the people that he then identifies as having to protect? That sounds fascinating. I would 100% read that novel. (laughs) (laughs) As a way of wrapping up here, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the purchase that you feel fiction or kind of any creative representation gives us on the types of histories that you're telling, many of which are like documented, but in very uneven ways. Well, maybe that's leading the witness a little bit, but I'm wondering just kind of what you see as fiction's particular purchase on the stories that you're trying to tell. I think this is a really beautiful time to be a writer because people are so hungry to learn about places they may never have an opportunity to visit or Mm. perhaps will one day now that they're being exposed to various narratives and histories and cultures. And I think what fiction has done for me is it, one, allowed me to, of course, mix the history of my home country with a genre that I love, which is speculative fiction. Mm -hmm. I was able to lean into or really move with a pace that felt the most natural to me in exploring some of the figurative aspects of my existence or human existence and just really delve into the spirituality in a way that was unbound. So I could go as far as I wanted to go 
with this history. Obviously, it's grounded in fact and it's mm-hmm. grounded in actual occurrences, but I had the freedom, I would say, to explore it using a genre that felt the most natural to me because I wasn't, all the stories I heard from my mother, my grandmother, my aunt included a character who was shape shifting or, you know, casting a spell. And so this genre isn't something that I would say is new. I just started to write and it's what came forth. It's what manifested. And so being able to then write in this genre and also marry it with this remarkable history was a way for me to reclaim and rediscover a part of me that I felt was lost because of the war. And that was, I'm so grateful for that experience and I'm so grateful for my art for giving me that gift. That is beautiful. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Wayatu Moore, author of She Would Be King. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, Eric. This was a great conversation. I appreciate you. Thanks for reading. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.